Thank you for, for joining us. Um, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we've had the privilege of journeying through uh, the book of Acts. And we've been choosing the book of Acts because uh, we spoke in our first couple weeks together um, that we're always trying to form an identity as a church. And one of the blessings we have here at Coral Ridge is that we have a very rich local history here. God's been gracious to our church, uh, and he's done mighty things through this church. And yet we're reminded in Acts that uh, our identity, though, as a church goes even beyond that, thankfully, by God's grace. And not only has he been so good to us here at Coral Ridge locally, but he's been good to us also historically and universally, that we as Christians, as I mentioned in our, our opening prayer, uh, find ourselves literally in the midst of what God, through the Holy Spirit, has been doing for all of time. Uh, building his redemption community, calling men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation uh, into the kingdom of, of Christ. And so what a, what a blessing we have and what power we have uh, as Christians to do the work of ministry in the church. And so in the book of Acts, uh, because it deals with the early church and because we uh, literally find ourselves uh, looking at the church right after the resurrection of Christ, we're given a lot of, uh, a lot of firsts. And so we saw uh, the first sermon Okay, preached uh, at Pentecost, literally the first sermon of the early church. We're used to hearing sermons every week. This is the very first sermon ever preached uh, this side of the resurrection. We saw the first conversion. Uh, and now as we get to Acts chapter 3, we're taking our time going through this book. As we get to Acts chapter 3, uh, we see the first healing. The very first healing uh, in the life of the early church. Obviously, in the ministry of Christ, there were many healings. This is the very first apostolic healing, the very first healing uh, in the life of the early church. So if you have a Bible, we're looking at Acts chapter 3, and I invite you to turn there. Uh, we usually have it on the, on the wall, but not tonight, because it's a bit of a lengthy passage that we'll be looking at. Uh, there's Bibles in the back, there's Bibles when you walk in, but uh, feel free to make use of whatever is convenient for you. But Acts chapter 3 is where we are. We want to just read verse 1. It says, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. You know, many people wonder, uh, why do the apostles continue to visit the temple even after Christ has come? Uh, he lives, he dies, he speaks of his body being the temple. Um, why do they continue to visit the temple even after the resurrection. And there's a couple reasons we can think of. I mean, the first is that the temple has not yet been destroyed. Uh, when it's finally destroyed um, by the Romans, that really is a, a major, major turning point in redemptive history that has many, many implications. But prior to that, even, they're still visiting the temple. And it seems that the reason is because the, the apostles uh, begin to understand that Jesus uh, is not replacing Judaism, if you will. That Christianity is not this offshoot of Judaism, even though even in today we speak in those terms sometimes. But in reality, Christ, that literal phrase, the anointed one, the Messiah, Christ is the fulfillment of Judaism. Okay? That true children of Abraham are those who worship the Christ God sent. And so you see the apostles begin to understand this. And so they continue to go to the temple uh, for very strategic reasons. Uh, to evangelize and to witness to the people. And we see them uh, doing this here in the very first verse. They understand that the Messiah would come, and he'd come first to Israel, but it would spread 
from there. We've talked about that now for, for a couple of weeks. But you see here, in the very first verse, they go to temple. And it says they go to temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Uh, your Bibles might give kind of a little you know, footnote at the bottom and tell you that that's about 3 p.m., okay? And so Josephus, who's one of our Jewish historians, tells us that when you go to the temple, uh, there were kind of the, the high points at which you'd go throughout the day. And so you'd go for the morning sacrifice. And then you'd go for the evening sacrifice. And then you'd go for maybe like a sunset prayer time, okay? And so right now we find ourselves here in this text, we find ourselves at the evening sacrifice, okay? 3 p.m. So think like late afternoon, more than an evening. This is the time in which they're going now up to prayer to the sacrifice. And notice that it's, it's Peter and John going. What had Peter and John previously done in their lives? Do you recall? They were fishermen, right? They literally owned a fishing business. Or we can think of like Forrest Gump, right? Or you know, Bubba Gump Shrimp or something like that, right? They own a, they own a, a fishing company, okay? They're blue-collar fishermen. Uh, and yet, what does Christ come and say? Come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, right? Fishers of men. So you see here, Peter and John, average, blue-collar guys called by Christ to become something greater than they themselves could have ever imagined. And we'll see their greatness here as apostles in the healing which is to come. But I don't want to gloss over that because I think that's so instructive for us. Think about Peter and John in their lives before they actually encountered Christ, how average they were, how average they were. And let that then fuel your imagination for what God can and will do through you. Granted, we're not on the same level as the apostles. I don't want to make that sort of you know, statement. But think about what God will do for his kingdom through people like you and me, through average Joes. There's a great, somewhat cliche, but still helpful phrase where it says that God doesn't call the qualified, but what does he do? He qualifies those he calls. And you see that with Peter and John average fishermen running a fishing business, yet God calls them to himself and then sends them into the world to be his ambassadors, to be his apostles, and yet in and of themselves, who are they? They're just average Joes. Um, I listen to a lot of sports talk radio, and I listen to the Dan Levitard show, which is on 790 The Ticket down here, and I can't in good conscience actually recommend it to you, um, but if you happen to stumble upon it, you know, just forget who recommended it to you, Okay. It's funny and not always good at the same time. But um, there's one thing they do that's always hilarious to me where it's a sports talk radio show, but they don't take themselves very seriously. And so they bring on these like B-list celebrities and sometimes even like just regular people who have just regular jobs. They bring them onto the radio show and they actually have them pick games. Because you know, you go on ESPN, and you have your like professional football experts in the suit and the tie, and they predict who's going to win week to week, and yet if you actually look at the end of the season, they're all like terrible. They're all like 20 and 30 in their record, right? And there's, these are the professionals, the experts getting paid millions to pick football games, and they're just as bad at it as somebody who knows nothing about football. And so I love the Levitard show because they'll bring these like B-list celebrities on and these average Joes to pick games, and a lot of times over the course of the season, the average Joes have the better record than the professional, you know, suit and tie experts on ESPN. And it just goes to show you there's really nothing special about these guys, right? Well, the same thing in a weird way is true here, right? The apostles, average Joes, and yet God does incredible things through them, and that is the pattern of Scripture. 
How many people does God call in the Old Testament who literally, when they're called, say, God, you got the wrong guy. You don't know who I really am. I'm, no, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. I'm from the smallest tribe. I don't speak well. Whatever the excuse might be, and yet God says, but you will be great, and you will do great things for my name, not because of your own strength, because of the one who sends you. And we see that here with the apostles as well. So Peter and John, they go to the temple at the hour of prayer, the evening sacrifice, verse 2, and a man lame from birth was being carried, who they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. You see, the apostles go to the temple because it's strategic. As I mentioned, this is rush hour in Jewish life. Evening sacrifice, 3 p.m., the crowds are large. So it's strategic on the part of the apostles evangelistically, but it would also be strategic on the part of a beggar who is seeking benevolence. There's large crowds. There's people who might be willing to do some of these things. And so he is laid there regularly to seek benevolence. And seeing Peter, verse 3, and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. If you, if you notice in those verses, a lot of attention is given to sort of where uh, the men are looking. As Peter directs his gaze at him, as did John, and they say to him, look at us. And he then gazes and fixes his attention on them. There's all this kind of you know, detail and attention spent to where people are fixing their eyes. And as I was thinking about this passage over the week, I think the reason for that is because if you think about this man, put yourself in the shoes of this man for a moment. He's sitting there at the temple gate, and daily crowds are coming by him, day after day after day. And we see this even in our own street corners sometimes, where what happens? There's this depersonalization that happens, is there not? And you can imagine this man for a moment, um, the crowds that go by him every day begin to depersonalize him. They don't really pay him much attention. He's just a fixture there by the gate, begging. And perhaps even he, the man, the lame man, begins to depersonalize others. He won't even look up anymore. He won't even look up. He just looks down and rings the bell, asks for his, his benevolence. And he begins to even see the people who, who walk by him every day, not as people, but as just means to whatever end that he, he needs for himself, he wants for himself. And so there's this sort of this depersonalization going on here, and yet what does Peter do? Peter comes, and much like his own Lord, much like Christ, he treats the man with dignity. He treats him with great dignity. He stops. He pauses. He looks down at the man. He says, look at me. Make eye contact with me. Why? Not because Peter wants to intimidate him, not because Peter wants to look down on him, but quite the opposite. He wants the man's full attention because in this moment, this man's life is about to change. This man's life is about to change incredibly. And what Peter does is what his Lord did, what Christ would often do in these instances. 
Peter won't settle for the secondary kind of issue. Did you notice that? Peter goes, I don't have any silver and gold. And there's kind of that, ah, the man's let down. But Peter goes, I've got something much better. I've got something much richer than any coins I could give you. He goes, because why are you asking for money? Honestly, why are you asking for silver and gold? Well, because the man is lame. He's incapacitated, so he can't work for himself, can't make a living for himself, can't do whatever for himself. And Peter says, then let's fix that problem. Then let's fix that problem. Let me give you the legs to walk. And so you can see here in this healing where Peter embodies the same methodology that Christ often would, which he goes past that sort of surface problem down to the heart issue, down to the root problem. There's this great quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, He says this, he says, imagine yourself a living house. You ask God to make some repairs. At first, he is getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly. It doesn't even seem to make much sense. What on earth has God up to? Well, the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but God is building a palace. You see, in in this healing, Peter gives the man much, much more than he had ever hoped for. And he does it in the name of Christ. And all through the Gospels, you see this with, with our own Lord. He meets people with great need. He's never content to settle, but he goes to the root problem. And he does that, of course, as the great physician. But I think he does it for another reason. The reason he does it is because he wants to show that as the great physician, what does Christ have power over? Well, he has power over sin's effects. That's the point of the healings in the Gospels, is that Christ wants to show that he has power over the effects of sin, that sin and its curse has been levied upon humanity, and it's led then to a broken world, a world full of disease, a world full of natural disasters, hurricanes come, and things like that. And Christ comes along, and what does he do? He takes care of these effects of sin, these symptoms of sin. So he's always concerned with people's physical well-being. He heals the deaf man. He heals the mute man. uh, He heals the woman with a flow of blood. All these kinds of things. But why does he do those things? He does those things so that people then will trust his ability to heal spiritually. He says, if I can do this physically, then what what I've also told you I can do in your hearts is true. I can cure the effects of sin, proving that I can also then go and tackle the disease of sin at its root, which he does on the cross. And that, so that when he tells you that your sins have truly been forgiven, you go, well, on what basis? You go, on the basis of the man who is able to heal the blind, to heal the lame, to walk on water. You see, the promises he makes spiritually can be trusted because he gives physical backing to those things in the miracles of Scripture. And you see his apostles now basically doing the same thing, proclaiming the good news of Christ and what he has come to do spiritually, but backing it up with validation and physical miracles and those sorts of things. So we continue, verse verse 7. And so Peter, 
takes the man by the right hand. Again, think of the dignity he's given to this man. He stops. He looks upon him. He touches him. Takes him by the right hand and raises him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Notice how Luke is calling attention to these things. Okay? This isn't a gradual healing, not an accidental healing. This man goes from begging, completely inept, to now leaping. Okay? Um, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. You see, what Peter wants us to see here in the healing, and what Luke, as the author, wants us to see is that a resurrection's taken place, if you think about it. A resurrection has taken place in the life of this previously dead man, especially socially dead man. Look at verse 7. He took him by the hand, and he raised him up. It's the same language used to talk about what happens to Christ, right? The Father raised him up. Death could not hold him. So a resurrection has taken place in this man's life, and it's instantaneous. You saw that. I remember um, my son Wyatt is five now, and when he began walking, he was a late walker. He was our first child, and he didn't start walking until he was like, well after a year old. And as a parent, you get kind of nervous, and you know, is he ever going to walk? Little did I know as a, as a new parent that once they walk, I mean, watch out, because when they don't walk, it's pretty easy. They just sit there. When they walk, my goodness, parenting becomes much more difficult. But I remember um, he was one of those classic examples where we have it on video. It's amazing. He literally is just sitting there. He's never walked before, never taken a step. He's sitting there. And if you know my son, he's kind of contemplative and pensive. He just sits there, kind of think, you see the wheels turning, thinking about it. And looks around the room, looks around, sort of like stands up, wobbles a little bit, and just walks totally across the room. And it's amazing. And it wasn't like a gracious walk. It was fumbling and bumbling and, you know, trips a little bit. But just kind of thought about it, sat up, and walked across the room. But it was that instantaneous kind of, you know, moment where you just were amazed. My goodness, that's possible. Well, think about this man. Instantaneously healed. He has been resurrected in a sense. But we see it's only possible, and this is Peter's point, why he keeps referring to the name of Christ. He goes, don't look at us as if we have some special power. I'm not, I'm not a televangelist with a special potion 
you know, you send 995 in the mail and get a cloth, okay? No, he goes, it's the name of Christ Jesus that has healed this man. This resurrection in this man's life is only possible because this man in whose name I've invoked resurrected from the grave. And his name now carries the power to defeat sin's effects in the lives of others. It's interesting because if you notice the detail in verse uh, 11, where is this healing taking place? Because it takes place in the temple, yes, but where in the temple? It says, in the portico of Solomon. The portico of Solomon. Take your Bible real quick. Take your Bible. Turn to John 10. Turn to John chapter 10. John 10, look at verse 22. How are we on time? What's the time? JT, what's the time? Okay. Uh, look at uh, John 10, look at verse 22. It says, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Okay, so same location that Peter is now in in the book of Acts. Verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And he answered them, I told you, you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. But he answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Um, The key here in that text is, if you saw, Jesus says in verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name, bear witness about me. Because he says to them, look, I've told you I'm the Christ. I haven't just told you, but I've shown you plainly, and yet, that's not the pro- you're not lacking evidence. You're lacking faith. I've done enough. My works attest to me. So now go back to Acts chapter 3. What we see here is that Jesus, in his ministry, in this very same location, had done work after work after work, that validated his claim as the Messiah. And yet, how did the people respond? They rejected him. They crucified him. They said, instead of the Messiah, we want Barabbas. And that's what Peter says. You exchange the author of life. Think about that title for a second. The author of life. I used to be pretty proud of myself when I authored a blog, okay? And I had like six followers, all right? The author of of life, okay? He says, you exchange the author of life for murderer, for a criminal. And so this is what's happening here. So Jesus and his ministry was in this very same location. He had done work after work after work that validated that who he said he was is true, that he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, and the people rejected him, and they crucified him. So now what happens? After his resurrection, he now sends his apostle he sends his foremost apostle to the same exact location, Peter. He comes back on the scene 
and in the same place does a miracle, and he does it in the name of the one that they rejected. And this is to show the people that they were wrong, basically. They were wrong of, in, in who they thought Jesus was. That he was who he said he was. He was the anointed one. And that even the name, even the mention of his name, even he doesn't have to be present, even the mention of his name carries such power that it can affect healing in this man's life. And yet, what does Peter also tell them? He says, but what? But worry not. That though you rejected him, this is amazing. We talked about this last week, or two weeks ago. Though you rejected him, your rejection of the Messiah was actually the very same thing that God used to accomplish his purpose. You see, he took your rejection of the Messiah and he used it to affect the death of Christ, the atoning sacrifice for your sins. And now Peter's come full circle to this crowd and says, guess what? Though you killed the author of life, though you exchanged God's Messiah for a criminal, God's grace is so profound, God's grace is so deep that if you simply repent and now trust in his name, you'll be forgiven. You'll be welcomed into his family and your sins will be put away forevermore. And I think this is why, why God even bothers to send Peter. If you think about it, you go, if the, if the nation of Israel, if they rejected the Messiah, they rejected the one that God sent, why in the book of Acts, why doesn't God just honestly be done with them? Why doesn't he just send Paul to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, and simply kind of start there? Why does he even bother to keep sending people like Peter and John into the very heart of Israel, into the temple, into the middle of their lives? Why does he do that? Well, the answer is for us in the rest of the passage, and we'll, we'll close with this idea. Look at verse 17. And now, brothers, this is Peter talking, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. And this is where we see God's sovereignty. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins would be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. For Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. But all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaim these days. And you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You see, the reason that Peter is still sent to the Jews first, to the Israelites first, and the reason why even the book of Acts is structured this way, you have the ministry to Israel first, through Peter and John, and then you'll have the ministry of Paul in the second half of the book to the Gentiles. But the reason God even bothers, why hasn't he written off his people? Why does he bother to now send Peter to the very same people who rejected his son? And the answer is because it's for their joy. 
It's their joy. He wants them to understand that when they rejected Jesus, they didn't reject some upstart kind of cult leader. They didn't reject this revolutionary. They didn't reject, you know, an enemy of Judaism. But that Jesus really was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob in the flesh, incarnate. And that to be a true child of Abraham is to be a follower of Christ. That's what, that's what Christ talks about with the Pharisees over and over and over again. And so in their rejection of Jesus, they've rejected the faith of their forefathers. You see, when God told Abraham that through him and his seed, all the world would be blessed, he had Christ in mind. He didn't intend to bless the world through customs. He didn't intend to bless the world simply through the, the giving of the law, though all those things are, are good, and Paul talks about that in his letters, how they're beneficial. He intended to bless the world by sending the Christ who would make full sacrifice, full pardon, full atonement for all of the human race. And you ask yourself, could there be a greater blessing than that? Through him, all the world would be blessed, and that blessing is the person of Christ Jesus. And so by rejecting him, what the, what the Jews do, they rejected their own history. They rejected the faith of their forefathers, and Peter wants to remind them that the Christ was given to them first for their joy. That God would come and he'd first walk their streets. He'd first walk their roads for their joy. I was uh, driving this summer in North Carolina, and we were driving through Hickory, which I found out for the first time is the home of Madison Bumgarner, who, if you care at all, he's a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants, very good pitcher, okay? And on the sign when you drive in, it says, home of Madison Bumgarner. And I thought to myself, it's amazing how we do that, right, in cities. If there's a famous person, an athlete, politician, we like to put on that, you know, welcome sign, this is the home of so-and-so. Why? Because we're proud of it. There's great joy in knowing that this person, wow, they grew up here, they lived here, oh, that's the high school they went to, all these kinds of things. Peter's saying, that was true of the Christ. He was in your midst for your joy, that his work of redemption and his work of reconciliation might start in Jerusalem. You might be privy to it, you might witness it, but then you also might be part of God's incredible effort to now take the good news of the gospel and the good news of his son to every corner of the globe. And I thought, that's the same thing for us too. And this is the whole point of us studying the book of Acts. Now, the same calling given to Israel, the same calling given to the early church, is the same calling given to us at Coral Ridge in 2016. And the question for all of us is, do we know this Jesus? Do we know this Jesus? Do we know the power of his life, the power of his death, the power of his resurrection. And Peter's question to the crowd is the question to us, will we embrace him? Will we embrace him? That times of refreshing might come over us and that we might then be sent out into the world, out into our communities, uh, out into our neighborhoods, telling people that God has come, that he loves them, and that he's done incredible things on their behalf. We'll close with this. Uh, we, uh, Bernie read this for us a few moments ago, but look at Isaiah chapter 35, and we'll end here. Isaiah 35, I love this. This is what the prophet spoke of long ago, and we see it fulfilled literally in the ministry of Peter. 
Isaiah 35, look at verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. That the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. We, We just read that in the temple. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool on the thirsty ground, springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You see, the good news of the gospel and the good news of what we see in the early church is that those streams have broken forth in the desert. But Christ has come. and He's in the process of turning back that curse and gathering people from all walks of life uh, into his marvelous kingdom.